0: Uh, as we look at Romans 8, the first eight verses we'll read this morning, and as you're turning there, uh, let me just remind you that um, that what we're doing uh, as we look at Romans 8 is, is sort of starting at 30,000 feet and, and then making our way down uh, sort of to ground level um, I I've wrestled with this passage, read through this passage more times than I can count. I I try to go through it like verse 1 and verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4, and I find that I just can't do it that way because verse 2 is connected to verse 18 and verse 4 is connected to verse 28 and verse 16 is connected back to verse 1. So, I'm just I'm trying to get us to drill down into the details of what is is really the high water mark in Paul's letter to the Romans. And in some respects, it's, it's, kind of the, it's kind of the peak of the mountain. I mean, it's in the whole of the Bible. It, it's, it is just such a gloriously wonderful and hopeful as we read this morning. So Romans 8, that's what we're doing. And we're somewhere between 30,000 feet and ground level as we read this morning. So Romans 8. Beginning at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can you hear that enough? (laughs) Amen. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Can you hear that enough? For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Let's pray together. Lord, give us this very same Spirit, the Spirit about whom we're reading here. Give us this Very same Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit commissioned by you, Father, together with the Son. Grant us this Spirit to open our hearts, open our eyes, open our minds to understand these rich, wonderfully freeing things here in your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So what we're doing is, as I said, we're, we're kind of moving from 30,000 feet down to ground level. And as we continue to dig down into the details of this letter, um, uh, I want to begin with a couple of illustrations. And then this week and next week, I want to ask some questions of this passage. In fact, I kind of want to ask some questions of, of the Apostle Paul, if you will. So a couple of illustrations and, and then a first question that we, we want to ask of this text. The first illustration, which I think helps us kind of get at what it is that Paul is getting at here uh, in this passage. Most of you know that my, my kids were here a couple of weeks ago with uh, husbands and a boyfriend and grandchildren. And um, I spent, um, I'm not kidding you. And you can applaud me and congratulate me for this. I spent the whole day yesterday doing laundry. Six loads of towels and sheets left over from the departure of this army of people. Who'd been with us. Barb is in Memphis. She left last Saturday to go to Chattanooga to help Leslie move from Chattanooga to Memphis, and then she went on to Memphis to help her unload and unpack, and so um, I did laundry all day yesterday in anticipation of my wonderful wife's return. Well, when our family was here a couple of weeks ago, my middle daughter, who is a runner, one morning went for a run. She, she got up early, and I was up early, and uh, she went for a run, and I said, okay, I'm not going to be lazy. I'm going to get up, and I'm I'm going to go for a ride. I can't run anymore, knees and hips. You know, some of you get what that's all about. So I ride a bike to try to keep death at arm's length, you know, do the thing for my heart that my doctor tells me to do. So she left a little bit ahead of me, and I hopped on my bike, and and thought that I would try and find her. I didn't know exactly which way she was going to go, but I got from our home to the 17th Street Causeway and turned left and and headed over the 17th Street Bridge. And as I rounded that corner, as I rounded that turn, I could see off in the distance, approaching the top of the bridge, a runner. Now, lots of people run and walk those bridges. But I knew immediately who was up on that bridge running. I knew that it was my daughter. And I could tell it was my daughter because I know her stride. I know how she walks. Parents can, can find their children in crowds of people. By the way they walk, you can certainly tell by the sound of a voice, but you can tell by the way they walk. And I could tell it was my daughter, even though I was more than a quarter of a mile, probably as much as half a mile away. With my 60-year-old vision, I could still tell that it was my daughter. By the way she ran, there's a distinctive thing about her gait, about her stride. And that's what Paul is saying here in Romans 8. Those who are in the Spirit have a distinctive way of walking. Right? They walk, verse 4, according not to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. They, they have a distinctive stride. They have a distinctive gait. And you can identify it. You can discern it. You can see it. That's what's being contrasted here. Two lifestyles, two ways of walking. It's interesting, isn't it, that the Scriptures use not only the language of walking to describe the Christian life. It's here in Romans chapter 8. It's also in Galatians chapters. Chapter 5, verses 16 and 25, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. And then verse 25, since we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The Bible uses not only the language of walking, but doesn't it use the language of running as well? Hebrews chapter 12. Let us run with endurance. The race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, walking, running. And there is a distinctive gait, There is a distinctive stride to the way Christians walk, the way Christians run. That's what Paul is getting at here. That's what he's leading us toward. Now I want you to notice this again. We've made this point several times as we've made our way through particularly these last four chapters, five, six, seven, and 8. I want you to notice again that Paul is describing something for us. He's not yet come to the moral code. He's not yet come to ethics. He's not yet come to the do's and the don'ts. We're very pragmatic people, aren't we? Isn't there something in you after nearly two years? It'll be two years in two Sundays that we started this study. Isn't there something in you that is crying out for a list? Give me something to do, Paul. He will. He will give you something to do. If you want to jump ahead, you can start reading what it is that he calls you to do, beginning in chapter 12. And when he starts telling us what it is that we're to do, how it is that we're to live, when the commands start coming, they start coming as an avalanche. They start coming as the waters that go over Niagara. And you see what his method is here? His method is to get us grounded. His method is to get us established. His method is to get us assured and solid and persuaded of our identity and who we are. Romans 12.1 is the great therefore conjunction in this letter. Because of all of this stuff that has gone on before, therefore. In view of God's mercies, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove what the will of God is. And then the avalanche starts and the waters cascade down like the Niagara. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. Why? Because we're still dealing with who we were and who we now are. And this is where the second illustration comes in. Folks, the Christian life is like climbing Mount Everest. It's like climbing Mount Everest. And you don't climb Mount Everest in a day. And in fact, you don't climb Mount Everest in a single hike. I heard this months and months ago, perhaps years ago, that before those who seek to make that ascent to the top of Mount Everest, before they begin that ascent, they establish a base camp. And there are two base camps for the ascent up Mount Everest, one on one side and one on the other side. And one base camp is at 17,000 feet. And the other is at 20,000 feet. It takes a while to get there, and once you get there, you have to become acclimated. And that's what Paul is doing. Before he challenges us, as we'll see next week, before he challenges us, begins to challenge us, with what is involved in this Christian life, which is where we are now in chapter 8. We're looking at this Christian life and what it is to live it, what it looks like, what it means. Before we even begin to make the final ascent, we've got to get acclimated. We have to know who we are. We have to know that we require resources outside of ourselves if any of what he says in chapter 12 is to become a reality for us. That's what he's doing here. He's getting us acclimated. Now let's ask some questions of the apostle. Just one actually this week. Let's ask some questions of the apostle and of this passage and continue to ready ourselves for the ascent Here's the first question. To whom, Now again, you're going to say, well, Mike, we've been over this before. (laughs) Well, I know we've been over it before, but again, Paul is my teacher, and he never tires of going over things again and again and again and again. To whom, Paul, are you speaking? To whom are you speaking? Who is in view here? Well, remember what we said last week. Remember that he is speaking to those who have a new standing. They have a new standing, no condemnation, absolute assurance of acceptance, no threat of judgment, no fear. Remember those bumper stickers you used to see 20 years ago? No fear. Remember that? It was some clothing line or some surfboard thing or something. I don't know. No fear. No fear. That's borrowed capital, friends no fear walk out of here today no threat no fear no threat of condemnation if you're a christian this morning fully finally completely accepted forever no fear you live in a new environment you live in the environment of the spirit you had dwelt in the land of the flesh But something has happened to you, and there's been a transfer. That's Colossians 1. Paul uses that language. We've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness. We've been delivered into the kingdom of His Son, in whom are light and life. There's been a resurrection, there's been a new marriage. We'll come back to these things again next week. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. We've died to this old law. We've died to this old husband. We've been wed to a new husband who is the incarnation of all of those things that are in the law combined with limitless grace and love and mercy. We've been united to a new husband and now it is in him. That we live and move and we have our being. That's our environment, the environment of the Spirit, the environment of Jesus Christ. And then the last thing we just sort of hinted at last week is that we have a new orientation, a new north star, a new focus, a new center, something at the center of our vision. And that is the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. And that's where Paul is now. That's where we kind of pick up. A person who is a Christian has a new and diametrically different focus. A new and diametrically different focus. Their minds are set on the Spirit. Now I want to come to that in a second. But as we come to it, again, this is why it's so difficult just to go sort of consecutively in a strict sort of way through this passage. What I want you to notice in chapter 8 is that the whole language of Paul's description of a Christian begins to change. What is it that is true of those who are in the Spirit what is it that characterizes those who are in the Spirit? What are the things that are true of them? Those who walk according to the Spirit, verse 4. Those who live according to the Spirit, verse 5. Listen to how they're described. If you're a Christian this morning, this is true of you. This is simply incomprehensible. Verse 8, Paul calls them brothers, these to whom he is speaking. I'm sorry. Verse 12 of chapter 8. But then verse 14. He calls them sons of God. And those who are led by the spirit of God. Verse 15 of chapter 8. He says that by the spirit. They have received adoption as sons of God. Verse 17. We are children of God. Verse 18, we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. Verse 19, again, sons of God. Verse 21, again, children of God. Verse 23, we wait for our adoption as sons. Verse 29, he calls Jesus the firstborn among many brothers. What's the language here? It's the language of family. It's the language of a father. in in relationship to his children. It's the language of privilege. It's the language of security. It's the language of safety. And it's the language of honor. And that's what you need to remember when you hear Paul use this word son repeatedly. You need to remember that it's not a term that refers so much to gender as it is a term that refers to standing, to honor, to distinction. It's a term that refers to a person's place in the family. A son is an heir. He uses the language of children. He uses the language of brothers. But you understand, we don't think of these terms in gender kinds of categories. We understand this language as family language. And specifically, the language of security and safety and honor. That's who you are as Christians. You can go back and read through the first seven chapters of this letter. And if my memory serves right, and if my reading this week was correct, only one time in those first seven chapters, and even in the first seven and a half chapters, does Paul use that kind of language. He uses the term brother one other time. I said to you last week, when you come to chapter 8, you come to this incredible explosion of joy. I illustrated it from Messiah. As in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Everything begins to change when you come to this 8th chapter. And you're propelled up into places of wonder and a beauty of privilege. So who are these people? Who are these people And Paul is addressing? Well, use the language of John. Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the sons of God, the daughters of God. It's all relational. It's all characterized by love and affection. Up to this point, Paul has been talking about justification and its benefits and its fruits. And justification is a glorious thing. It means forgiveness. But justification is judicial. Justification is penal. Justification is forensic. It has to do with law and guilt and freedom from law and guilt. It has nothing to do with relationship. But all of this language now and the whole glory of chapter 8 is that more than forgiveness has been achieved. And you are now Sons and daughters of the living God, heirs with Jesus of all of the fullness of the Father's house, of all of the blessedness of the kingdom of God. Look, forgiveness is a great thing, but it's not the greatest thing. J.I. Packer talks about this in his book, Knowing God. He says, justification is the foundational blessing of the Christian life, but not the highest blessing. Adoption to be the very child of God. That is the supreme blessing. Blessing, and that's where we're headed in this chapter. That's what it means to be in Christ, that's what it means to be in the Spirit. So, those are the ones whom Paul is addressing. Now, what does he mean when he says to us, as the sons of God and the daughters of God? What does he mean when he says that those who are in the spirit set their minds on the spirit? Here are a couple of things. What does it mean in the first place to set the mind on the spirit? Well, it means to have a particular focus. Now, remember, I remind you of this. I reminded you of it last week, reminded you again this morning. Those who set their minds on the Spirit have had something happen to them. And the result of what has happened to them is that they have begun to have this new focus. And that's what it is, to set your mind on something. It's to have a new focus. The field of vision is a fascinating thing, isn't it? Eyesight is a fascinating thing. Not only is it a miraculous thing, but it's a fascinating thing. The field of vision is a remarkable thing. I can see quite a lot, can't I? And you can see quite a lot. But don't we distinguish between what is in the center of my field of vision and my peripheral vision? And what Paul is talking about here is what is at the center of my vision. And when I have my mind set on something, when it is occupied with the thing that is in the center of my vision, the things that are peripheral begin to fade away, don't they? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. When Jesus is at the center of your vision, the peripheral things fade away. They may still be there in your field of vision, but they don't matter. That's what Paul is saying here. He gives us a clue to what it is that he's after. In chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, to to have your mind, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, to have your mind set on something is to have something at the center that fills your vision. To have your mind set on the spirit, to use Colossians 3, 1 and 2, is to have your mind set on Christ. It is to have your mind set on Christ. The Spirit is not some vague, unidentifiable quiver in the liver. The Spirit is not some impersonal force. I have to bite my tongue sometimes when people refer to the Spirit with a third-person, singular, neuter pronoun, it. The Spirit is not an it. The Spirit is a he, and the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And we'll see this when we look in more detail at verses 9 through 11. The Spirit and Christ, Paul uses virtually exchangeably, not inexchangeable, but exchangeably. Read the verses. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. They're exchangeable. They're distinguishable, but they are indivisible. And so when Paul says that we have our minds set upon the Spirit, he's saying, in effect, we have our minds set upon Christ. And again, Colossians 3, 1 and 2, he uses the same language. If, then, or since, since is the better rendering, since then you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above where Christ is. What is it to have your mind set on the Spirit? Well, it is to have your mind set upon Christ. It is to see Christ at the center of everything. It is to turn your eyes upon Jesus. To look full in His wonderful face. So that the things of earth grow strangely dim in light of his glory and grace. This is the ministry of the Spirit, in fact. The ministry of the Spirit is, in fact, the ministry of directing our attention not to himself, but to Jesus. This is what Jesus said, John 16, verse 14. He, referring to the Spirit, he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine. He will declare it to you. He will glorify me. The ministry of the Spirit is the ministry of glorifying Jesus. That is what is at the center of it. There are a lot of things the Spirit does. The Spirit gives gifts. Thankfully, every once in a while, the Spirit does give a quiver in the liver. It's a wonderful communication of the affection of the Father for his children. But what is at the center of the ministry of the Spirit is to exalt Jesus, to lift Jesus up, to draw attention not to himself, but to draw attention to the Son. And it is the distinct, special, and central work of the Spirit to get us to do the same. So that Jesus stands at the center of our field of vision and becomes our consuming passion so that we see Jesus as exalted, as raised up as seated at the right hand of the Father in the midst of great glory. That is the aim of the Son, of the Spirit. And the Spirit accomplished that in the life of the Apostle Paul. And Paul then becomes a model, a picture of what it is that the Spirit is doing in each of our lives. Let me show you what I mean. Let me give you a couple of passages, a couple of passages that illustrate this. How the Spirit, through a Spirit-inspired author, the Apostle Paul, focuses his attention upon the supremacy of Jesus. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, by him all things were created. And they were created through him, and they were created for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is, in him all things subsist. And are held in place. You want to know what the glue is that keeps this universe from flying apart? It is Jesus Christ. To use the language of Hebrews 1. He, Jesus, the eternal Son, upholds all things by the word of his power. All things. had a fascinating conversation this last week. Fascinating with a person who's wrestling through the implications of the being and character of God. And in this conversation, this person was suggesting that there may be some things which God does not know. There may be some things which God does not know. There are two things about that that should absolutely terrify you. Number one, it isn't consistent with the teaching of Scripture. And number two, and even more important, personally and practically, if there is something in this universe which God does not know, it could be that thing, that very thing that takes you out forever. The notion of the knowledge of God is not some theoretical abstraction. It is intensely practical. And the eternal Son of God upholds all things by the word of His power. He's before all things. And in Him, in Jesus, all things hang together. And as Francis Schaeffer used to say, when you hear the word all, you gotta mean all. You gotta cast a net around everything. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Do you want to know what the being and character of God are like? The totality of the being and character of God were pressed into the humanity Of Jesus Christ. Don't ask me to explain it. But it's true. In him. All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him. Was God pleased to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. Making peace by the blood of his cross. There are four sermons in that last verse. Do you see, do you see what a Spirit-inspired author has done? By the Spirit's agency, the Spirit whose aim and concern it is to exalt the Son through the Apostle Paul has set before us the supremacy of Jesus. What is it to fix our minds on the Spirit? It is to have Jesus at the center of our field of vision. Let me give you another passage really quickly just so that you can see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 1, verses 15 to 22. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. In other words, being roughly and quickly paraphrased, what Paul is praying for is that these Ephesians would understand. Not that they'd get some new information, but that they would understand Jesus Christ. That their eyes would be the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened so that they would know what is the hope to which they've been called, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, All authority, all power, all dominion above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as a gift. He gave the Son, exalted, ruling and reigning far above every principality and power. He gave him as a gift, as head over everything, to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things in all ways. What's at the center of Paul's field of vision? It is Jesus. Where is it that our minds begin to be directed As we walk this Christian life, as we live this Christian life, as we walk in the Spirit, our minds begin to be directed to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, to the glory and majesty and wonder of his being and of his rule and his reign over all things for the benefit of the church. That's what Paul has in mind in Ephesians 1. That's what he wants us to be occupied with. To have at the center of our field of vision. There's no point in trying to walk this Christian life, live this Christian life, without having Jesus at the center of our field of vision. So what is it to have the mind set on the Spirit If the mindset upon the flesh means to see everything and interpret everything and reason about everything disconnected from the infinite personal God who is really there, then to have the mind set on the spirit is to see everything, interpret everything, reason about everything with the infinite personal God at the center of everything who is Jesus Christ. Now let me give you an example of this and close with it with a couple of widely divergent illustrations. Here's what begins to happen for the Christian. The Christian begins to see everything in light of Christ, in light of his glory, in light of his rule, in light of his reign, in light of the fact that he is upholding and sustaining everything far above all rule and authority. That's what begins to happen. And it begins to have tremendous personal and practical implications for us. Here are the illustrations. I'll do this pretty quickly. I'm listening to a series of lectures that a friend gave me on the birth of the Hellenic world, the Greek world. And it all starts with Philip II, a Macedonian, who consolidated power. You've got to abbreviate this story, okay? But it is just phenomenal. Philip II, who consolidated power in Macedonia, who became king in Macedonia, and then who went on to conquer Greece. And because the Persians had been so nasty to the the Greeks a century and a half or so before, it was Philip's intention to pay them back. And so his intent was to march into Asia Minor, what is now Turkey, and make his way to the Persian armies so that he could spank them for the manner in which they had treated the Greeks and the Macedonians, but he was assassinated before he, he could do it. And so Alexander, his son, Alexander the Great, assumed the mantle of responsibility. And you know something of the story of Alexander, I suspect, that he came to power, as it were, in about three 33, 334 BC, and for the next 11 years, he marched through Asia Minor, and he smacked the Persians, and then he went down into Egypt, and he became Pharaoh in Egypt, but he wasn't satisfied with that. He went farther and farther east, and he kept beating up enemies and consuming territory until he got to India. And when he got to India, his troops finally said, enough is enough. We want to go home. And so he relented. But he died in Babylon in 323 B.C. But he had established this massive empire. And you ask yourself the question, what's the significance of that? Well, the significance of that is simply this, that while Alexander wanted to consolidate all of these various cultures and wanted to homogenize them and wanted to impose Greek culture upon the whole of the known world, he died before he could do it. But what he did leave in his place was a language, a language that came to be known as Koine or Common Greek and common Greek became the language of commerce, the land of trade, the land of interaction among all of these diverse cultures three centuries later. And when you add to it the growth of the Roman Empire and the engineering feats of the Roman Empire and the Pax Romana under Augustus, three centuries later, what you have is a level of uniformity Abilities to communicate and travel that have been, that were unknown prior. And you know what all of that made possible? The communication of the gospel. Paul says in Galatians 4, verse 4, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And the word that's used in the text is one of three or four words in the Greek. There's the word chronos that gives us our word chronology. That refers to the sequence of moments, marking time. There's the word aeon, which gives us our word eons, massive amounts of time. And then there is the word kairos. And kairos time, that time is epic. Time. That time is God appointed, God ordained time. Not that other time is outside of God's hands, but there are these epic, significant, God appointed moments. And the birth of Jesus was one of them. And what God did, not what Alexander did, not what Augustus did, but what God did was superintend the life of Alexander, the growth of the Roman Empire, the life of Augustus to one particular end and purpose the coming of Jesus Christ and the dissemination of the gospel throughout the world. Do you know that there is strong evidence for the fact that Thomas went to India and that the church of Jesus Christ was planted in India in the first decades after the resurrection? Why? How? Because the risen Christ glorified, ascended, ruling and reigning, upholding all things by his father's power had set the stage for the gospel to be carried to the ends of the earth. That's the big macro illustration of what it means to set your mind on the spirit, to have Christ at the center of everything, to understand him ruling and reigning over all things for the church. And here's the micro-illustration. Bob is here this morning. He may know that I'm going to tell this story. I sat with Bob and Pat Deniger in the hospital and told them the story of Alexander the Great and the subsequent story of Augustus Caesar and then had the joy and privilege of saying to them the hand of God that directed and guided and led Alexander and Augustus, albeit unwittingly, is the hand that is leading and guiding and directing you right now. Romans 8.28 All things work together for the good of those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. How can Paul say such a thing? He can say it. Because King Jesus, upon whom we are to set our minds, in terms of whom we are to see and interpret and understand everything, King Jesus is ruling and reigning at the right hand of his Father in the midst of a splendor and a glory, the likes of which we cannot imagine. I know that we confess this morning that no eye has seen and no ear has heard and no human heart has ever imagined the blessedness that awaits us in the presence of the Father. This is one point at which the Heidelberg Catechism is wrong. There is an eye, there is an ear, and there is a heart that has seen and heard and begun to enjoy that blessedness. And that is your elder brother Jesus at the right hand of his Father, ruling and reigning over all things for you in every circumstance of your life, bringing all of it to a grand and glorious close, when he will be exalted and you will be free. That's what it means to set your minds on the Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, take these things, drill them down into our hearts, press them into the deepest parts of the fabric of our souls so that rather living in fear or doubt or uncertainty, we may live with confidence and joy and freedom. To the praise of your glorious grace. Lord Jesus, be with these, your beloved brothers and sisters. Be with these, Father, your beloved children. As we leave this place and head out into this world, we ask in your name. Amen.